0: Uh, I'm still up here, if, if you didn't notice, uh, and so I'm actually I'm, I'm going to be teaching today. Uh, it's good to be back. If you want to, you can open your Bibles to Matthew nine, um, and I'm going to be reading from Matthew nine and nine. But before I get to that specifically, I'm just going to give you a little bit of backstory. And the backstory story is this. Three things happened um, semi-recently, uh, and I want to tell you about them. The first one is that I found a note card. <laughs> um, doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was to me. I, was, uh, I needed my Social Security uh, card for something, and so I was like, I have a chest that I kind of keep all that important stuff in, and I was looking through and I was trying to find it, and before I got to my Social Security card, I got to this little um, 3x5 note card. And I was like, what is this? This looks like my, this looks like my handwriting. And um, when I looked at it, I realized, like I kind of had a flashback, and I realized that this was actually a note that I had written to myself. My English teacher in high school had this bright idea. At 18 years old, you should write a note to your 30-year-old self. <laughs> and so here I have this three, 3 by 5 note card, and like, already my hands are shaking. Like, please don't disappoint this 18-year-old Michael <laughs> with your life now. <laughs> and, uh, And so I start reading it and I'm like a little bit terrified because obviously the idealism of an 18-year-old doesn't match the realism um, of a 30-year-old. And so um, I was looking at it and the first sentence said, um, hey Mike, uh, it's me. (laughs) And it said, uh, I I hope um, now that you're 30 that you have a really, really cool job in advertising. And I was like, eh. I have a job in advertising, it's not that cool, but like that's, I would consider that like a check, so like I'm pretty impressed with myself, you know? And then it said, I hope that you are married and have a kid, and I was like, oh shoot. (laughs) I'm not married, nor do I have a kid, and that's not something you really like microwave overnight, so uh, I'm a little behind on that one. And then it got into this, You know, I flipped the card over onto the back and 18-year-old me had written all of these dreams and aspirations about my character and my spirituality, and I was just like, good lord, give me a break, 18-year-old Mike. And there was a lot of idealism in there about the way things were going to be when I was 30. And what I can definitely say is 18-year-old Mike thought that 30-year-old Mike would have everything figured out. Um, And it was super interesting to sit down there with that note card because it was like, man, It's pretty crazy how far off I actually am from what I envisioned I would be when I was 18 years old. Um, A second thing happened. And the second thing is like there wasn't actually like a physical thing that I had. But it was some somewhere around 2017, 2018. The only way I can explain it is like all of my heroes died. And I don't mean like they physically died. I mean like just the idea that there are heroes in life just was over for me. I think some of it was triggered by like what was happening in the world uh, with the Me Too movement and stuff. You just saw like people were just dropping like flies. And you were like, geez, like if Bill Cosby, the nicest guy in the world, is actually this bad, like who's left? And you just saw people one by one dropping. But that was also happening in the church world, so that was really weird. There was a couple really, really big name brand like pastors and teachers um, who had fallen into a whole lot of stuff. And so there was this idea, that like, man, these people who, like, almost, like, led the charge of the church, like, we thought they had it figured out. They obviously didn't. Um, and I think there was something, like, mixed in that. It wasn't just, like, the world out there, the world in here. There's, like, something with getting older, where you just realize, I don't know, I, when I hit 30, I, I, you know, when you're, like, in your teens, you have this idea that, like, I remember my youth leader when I was a teenager was just the coolest guy in the world because he had like a Nissan Maxima, you know, <laughs> and like it was like that was, you just had this idealized version of everyone and then as you get older the ideal, the idealization starts being chipped away a little bit, right? And, um, and so that definitely happens like when you hit 30 because what happens is 40 and 50 year olds start confiding in you about things that are going on in their life and you're like, ugh, what? <laughs> like you're the person who's supposed to have it all figured out and it's like a super scary moment because You just realize, like at some point, you get to the level of maturity where you're like, "Man, like I am just I'm an adult. Um, I'm a kid in an adult's body, and the 50 or 60 year old person is also a kid in an adult's body, and everybody's winging it, and we're all trying to figure this out, and that's like a disillusioning moment for someone who's very idealistic, you know? Um, So I faced like a little bit of disillusionment with that. That was the second thing. The third thing. was that my girlfriend called me and she said, we need to talk. And if you've ever had that phone call, you know, that's not good news. (laughs) Um, We went for a walk and basically like to make a long story short on this walk, she was um, explaining that she was, uh, she just didn't feel like we had the type of emotional connection that she was looking for and that I couldn't really be vulnerable enough to get to the depth of what that relationship should be fun. <laughs> Any of you guys out there have been in those conversations, you know how much that sucks. So um, I had all, all of these things happen kind of like around the same time, you know, and, um, and basically I was just like, man, it was almost like just felt a little bit side-swiped. I'm I'm kind of talking happy now, but those are like pretty depressing, sad things to have gone on, you know. Whenever I have these types of conversations with my friends where I'm like, Uh, yeah, like, here's the thing, man, like, you know, I don't really feel like I have a hero left. There's nobody, like, to follow that I can look up to, nobody's going anywhere, whatever. It always gets kind of real sad, and it gets quiet like this. And then we always go, but I'm all right now, though. (laughs) Just eases the tension of the room. Um, But I am all right now, though. But I want to kind of share um, some insight onto how I got there. And to do that, I want to look at Matthew 9. I'll read it for you. Um, I read out of the ESV, so if, if it's a little bit off, um, you're gonna have to deal with it. Uh, <clears throat> the, header for, the header for this section is Jesus calls Matthew. Um, but if you, uh, if you ever read the message translation, which is kind of fun to pop over to every now and then, um, the headline for the message translation says, uh, who needs a doctor? And I think you'll, you'll see why as we get through this. Um, as Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a a table in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well, this is Jesus, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to, not to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, other translations say uh, not, the righteous, but not sinners, to repentance. Um, I came across this verse in my exploration of this whole idea of like, hey, what's going on with Mike Gaglione right now? And um, the uh, something in this really like, just drew me. And I don't know if you ever have this experience with scripture, but sometimes it's like, Something draws you and you don't know exactly why, and it almost takes some time to formulate even what God is actually saying to you or speaking to you. That's what this verse was like for me. Let me kind of visually lay out what's happening in this situation because I feel like it helps. Um, you have... Uh, over here you have Jesus. I'm sorry in advance. I'm the worst artist like of all time, but um, hopefully that makes it better. <coughs> so here's Jesus... Here's some tax collectors. They're in a house, right? This is Matthew's house. They're part, I told you, <laughs> they're partying it up. <laughs> um, so this is JC and the TC's. It's like a good boy band, right? <clears throat> um, they're over here, the Pharisees are over here. They're kind of hanging out like on the fringes of this house, close enough that they can kind of creepily see what's going on, um, but far enough away that they're not involved, right? And um, when we look at this situation, basically, um, like the typical way that you would conventionally set up this story, like if you like, pulled up a Tim Keller message, how does he talk about this? We would do that typical thing we say in church. We're like, these guys over here are the religious guys. And over here is the relationship, life with God, you know? And um, I think for us in church, like the way that we usually do things, we talk about, oh, weren't the Pharisees so stupid? And like, they, like, they couldn't like, get with the new agenda they didn't really understand, like, a whole new thing was coming, and they should just embrace it. And we are always, like, the tax collectors that Jesus um, came to save, right? And so we're always just, like, eating at the table with with, uh, with Jesus, and we have this relational life with God. That's pretty much the narrative of, like, a normal sermon you would hear. The trouble was, for me, I was relating more to these guys than I was to those guys. And the reason I say that is because I feel like Um, from the feedback that I was getting in life and some of the things that were going on uh, with me, that there was an invitation um, over here to acknowledge what Jesus is saying when when he basically says, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. I saw some truth in the reality of this, and this is something we all know. Who's actually sick in this situation? Both people, right? Like, everybody knows, like, the Pharisees, they're part of the human experience just like everybody else they had marriages that weren't that great, they had kids that didn't like them, they had bad habits they couldn't kick. Like, all of that stuff was there, but they had an exterior of the law that they relied on. But there was no Pharisee that, that possibly could have thought their internal world was okay, because they woke up like we do every day. You know what I mean? So we have this caricature of like what a Pharisee is, but the reality is, to me, a Pharisee is someone who is in a religious system but has to deal with the tension that the inner world is not what the exterior projects. Does that make sense? So, maybe you see yourself a little bit more like a Pharisee today. I know that sounds super sacrilegious to say in church, but maybe you identify this when you look at things that way. What I see here, especially when Jesus says, I came for sinners, I really see this as a scene where it's like a Pharisee could have easily walked over and just been part of the meal. You could have just sat at the table but why not? Why do people stay over in this area and why do they not make the walk over to the table? And I think the reality is, I just don't think they feel like they have permission. And that permission is a permission to show weakness. And that feels super similar to the culture that we have a lot in churches. Um, I wrote this down. As time goes on, and this is like, I'm actually talking to people who are in the faith, people who have like a, a maturity, believers who really do, um, believers who want relational life with God and on our trajectory towards that. Here's what I have to say to you, because this is my experience. Um, as time goes on, there's a tendency to drift towards religion and away from relationship. There's a tendency to drift, and I use that word drift intentionally, because if you're not intentional, you will head over in this direction because here is where you can control things, and here is where you can't. Um, this is illustrated a little bit better uh, by um, an author uh, named Andy Crouch, who uh, has a concept about strength and weakness. And um, basically, like, before I draw it, you know how like there's things in the world where people set up, like, uh, people set up certain dichotomies. They're like, are you going to be um, are you going to be an authoritative parent, or are you going to be a permissive parent? And, um, and you have to kind of like choose between either one, right? And that kind of is weird, because like it's like there are going to be instances where you're authoritative, and there's going to be instances where you're permissive. And there's probably not necessarily like a, an either or. There's probably going to be like a both end fusion of that. And when we look at things, a lot of times we assume that there's, there's either or, but a lot of times it actually is both end. Andy walks through and discovers this concept um, when he looks at the idea of being strong and being weak, but being them at the same time. And so on this axis, which if anybody's like a math person, this is the y-axis? Yeah? Yes. And then this is the x-axis. Basically what Andy says is this area up here, um, this axis is the authority axis. And so down here is a low level of, of authority, and up here is a high level of authority. And then over here, this is the vulnerability access. And so this is a low level of vulnerability, and this is a high level of vulnerability. So um, when you look at this, like obviously, like every good chart in the world, everybody wants to go up and to the right. And so um, the case that Andy makes is that real true flourishing in life happens in that quadrant. And um, I'm going to read you an excerpt uh, from his book so that you understand exactly what I'm talking about. He says, many simple ideas are simplistic. They filter out too much of reality to be truly useful. This one is not, because it's a particular kind of idea, the kind we call a paradox. It holds two simple truths in a simple relationship, but it generates fruitful tension. I've come to call it the paradox of flourishing. Irenaeus wrote, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. To flourish is to be fully alive, and when we read or hear those words, something in us wakes up, sits a little bit straighter, and leans ever so slightly forward. To be fully alive would connect us not just to our own proper human purpose, but to the very heights and depths of divine glory. To live fully in transitory lives on fragile earth in such a way that we somehow participate in the glory of God, that would be flourishing. And this is what we're meant to do. Every paradox requires that we embrace two things that seem like opposites. The paradox of flourishing is that true flourishing requires two things that do not seem like they go together at all. But in fact, if you do not have both, you do not have flourishing, and you do not create it for others. Here's the paradox. Flourishing comes from being both strong and weak. Flourishing requires us to embrace authority and vulnerability, capacity and frailty, even, at least in this broken world, life and death. So what Andy is basically saying there is like the quadrant that you want to be in in life is you want to be in this quadrant because this is where real flourishing happens. The paradox is you think that as you gain more authority in life, as you move more in this direction, that you become less vulnerable. But everybody knows the the more that you can kind of get into an area of control, the more vulnerability you need to get out of an area of complete control. I mean, we have like governments that head towards authority and have no vulnerability. That's called a dictatorship, right? And then we have governments that have a high level of authority like the US and there's a there's a higher level of vulnerability. We're open to and a lot of people are always disappointed by election results. And there's a there's a higher level of vulnerability. Now that applies to your personal life as well. So for somebody who's in the religious system, for somebody like a Pharisee, Pharisees at the top of the religious food chain, they're going to be in what quadrant? This one. Quadrant two. The reason they're going to be there is because they have a high level of authority, but they have a low level of vulnerability, especially with what's going on in the exterior of their world, right? The authority that they've been entrusted to means that they need to keep a firm exterior so that nobody nobody sees any weakness that they might have. They spend their life here in quadrant two. The case that Jesus is making when he's sitting with the tax collectors, and he says, come on, I've come for the sick, he's saying, I mean, Jesus has a super high level of authority, he's saying vulnerability exists in this area, and you can head in this direction, and that's where true life is found. Um, I look at this, and I kind of see, like, uh, two interesting things. The first is this. In life, you will probably, if you're sitting in this room in Chad's Ford, PA, in America, In life, you will probably head towards greater authority as you age and mature. And as you do that, you're gonna have choices that you make. And by the way, this is, there's categories for how this can work. Like spiritually, you're gonna reach levels of maturity. Professionally, you're gonna reach levels of maturity. Relationally, you're gonna reach levels of maturity, right? And as this happens, you'll be given a critical choice. And the critical choice is, as you go up this, where will you slide on this axis? will you head towards greater vulnerability or not? The case that Andy makes is that true human flourishing, every time there's a step up in authority, there should be a step over in vulnerability. And every time there's another step up, there's another step over, another step up, another step over. But if we drift, we tend to drift here. Because this is comfortable, this is safe, and this is what we can control. Examples of like how that plays out like in actual life, right? Um, let's say that you become, uh, you know, you become a believer, and you have a conversion experience, and like let's take a really dramatic example. Let's say somebody was like a junkie, hooked on drugs, and then they come forward and they say, you know, what I screwed my whole life up, and I'm totally broken, and I need Jesus, and God meets them right there, and now here they are, they're part of our community, right? Well, what's their, I mean, they have a low level of authority, right? They haven't even been a Christian for like more than 10 minutes, and they have a super high level of vulnerability. So they live down here in quadrant one, right? But what starts happening, let's say, after 10 years? After 10 years, they start to grow. And as they grow, they grow in authority. They know more about the Bible. They might be involved in ministries. They might do all kinds of things here, right? And so as they head up the authority access, what happens on the vulnerability access? Do they keep taking steps to the right or do they drift in this direction? Drifting in this direction would basically be constantly telling the story of one day I was a sinner but now everything's okay. Now everything on the outside is totally fine. Um, This can happen professionally too obviously as you go up in authority you can drift towards um, towards less and less vulnerability. So For some of you like middle managers or people who like uh, who lead teams in the workplace, you obviously know. I always feel like I that's what it looks like by the way for you people on the side. (laughs) Um, For those of you guys who are who are leading people, um, you know that as you head up towards authority, there's those two trajectories that you can go on. But the risks that come with vulnerability are substantial and so you tend to drift. Um, how about in family life? In family life, like you're a, you know, if you're a father of a family, you have been given a certain amount of authority. And then you actually have to work out what is your vulnerability level going to be with your family. Here's the interesting thing about this. Do you know where the loneliest quadrant is? It's the same one over here. Do you know why it's lonely? Because nothing's real there. <laughs> um, do you think that the Pharisees, do you think they were the people who really did have it all together? Um, is there anybody in this room who really thinks they do have it all together? So anything that we do that's image driven, anytime we project a certain thing that's, other, that's not exactly who we are, we have to isolate further and further from people. We move from relational life to a more religious life. And it pulls us in a direction where basically what happens is you wake up one day and you're like, I feel like no one knows me. I feel like no one understands me. And I feel like no one loves me. It's a super, super lonely place to be. And so that's, what you, that's, the, that's the demonic trade you make when you, um, when you decide that you want to live up in this, this quadrant. The price that you will pay for power and control is that you will be lonely. Um, so the reason I can say that is because that's what I was experiencing. I was realizing that relationally in life, prompted by, as what most of the best things in life are prompted by, a woman. Um, Like what happened to me was just knowing that I wasn't going to relationally connect to the level that I wanted to um, and to the level that I desired. And there was certain, like there was really substantial things holding me back. And one thing that I really, really identified super early was whatever those things were, um, there was was like 95% of me that everybody always saw. And there was 5% of me that people don't. And most of us have that 5%. Yeah, show of hands. (laughs) Most of us have that 5% that we just don't share. And um, the problem is, it seems like such a little bit like it's only 5%. So like, why is it such a big deal? You know, you get 95% of me. The problem is that 5% is such a huge driver in your life of the decisions you make and the trajectories that you're on. It's so, so critical. And so what happens is when you don't give someone the 5%, when you don't actually enter into vulnerability and get actually known by someone, you will literally never be known. No one can actually get in there and dig out the 5% that you don't show, and you will go the rest of your life not feeling like you're known. Um, when I recognized this, I was like, uh, I was like, you know what, this, is, this calls for uh, some radical vulnerability. Like, I was like, this is, not, this is not something where I can just be like, oh, you know, like maybe I'll like read a book about it or something like that. I was like, ah. And I probably just, I don't have the personality in general to sit with stuff too long. So I was just like, all right, I'm taking off in like this direction of pursuing radical vulnerability. And I want to try and find out what's at the other end of this, you know? I do not want to live my lonely, sad life in quadrant two when true flourishing exists on this axis. And so what I did, um, and this is just what I did. I'm not saying this is the roadmap for success, nor would I even say that I've been super successful. But um, I just want to give you like, here's my story of of a couple things that I did Um, to get started. The first thing is, I booked six counseling sessions in two weeks. And I met with the guy and he was like, who died? (laughs) Because that's way too many sessions to have um, in two weeks. But I was like, here's the thing, I'm trying to really get to the bottom of a a couple things that are going on with me. I need to process them with with somebody who's intelligent um, and can just hear my full story. And so that was number one, Um, just like, met with a counselor. Number two, I met Uh, Along with a counselor, I basically had sit-downs with every person that I knew Um, Now I mean like every person I knew that like loved me and cared about me and like wanted to hear my story I wasn't like grabbing a lady at Starbucks and being like hey, you'll never believe what's cooking Um, (coughs) Everybody I knew and I asked for feedback. I was like hey, what would you do if you were in my shoes? How do you experience me? Like what are you seeing? Like I'm trying to figure a lot of this out number three um, uh, my girlfriend and I we took two weeks where we talked every single night and I kind of filled her in on Way more specifics of my story um, Because you know, we've we've known each other for you know very little time and she, she Basically doesn't know anything about my teens or my 20s or anything like that And so I was like I really want you to know who I am And so I'm gonna try and be vulnerable and give you like the highs and lows and those highs and lows were like really really specific um, that was annoying, by the way. Like, you do realize what I'm talking about is the actual hard stuff. Like, we would sit there and we would have conversations, and it would be like, you know, you're being vulnerable when like you're like breathing a little bit faster, and your blood pressure is rising a little bit, and your heart is beating, and like that's how like you don't need. To, it, it, there's never really a question like, am I really being vulnerable in this moment? Like, you'll know because like you'll be sweating a little bit on the back of your neck. And you'll be wondering, How does, what is this person going to think of me now, and am I still accepted? You know? So that's what, um, that's what her and I did. Um, the fourth thing I did, I took three close friends, people that I love and trust, um, and I met with them. And basically I said, hey, I think that there's part of me and my story that you don't know. And so I want to take you through the whole thing. And so whatever gaps I knew that that person had in my story, um, whatever, um, whatever things that I thought that they missed that were real drivers in my life, any kind of like unconfessed sin, any conversations that I had that changed the trajectory of things, I had those uh, I had those conversations um, and filled in the gaps for, for the for those people that are closest to me. Fifth thing I did is I threw away half my apartment, but I'll actually tell you that in the next sermon. Um, the sixth thing that I did is, um, I don't know if you guys know, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in New York a lot for work, and so I'm there so much, like, I'm, I'm there basically three weeks a month at least, and so I'm there so much that I decided to get plugged into a church up there, and the church that I'm plugged into does something really cool where they have core groups, and what that means is that they're not like Bible studies, core groups are two or three people that get together, and once a month, you do a tell-all, um, with the people that are in your core group. And the tell-all, I didn't really know what it was gonna be like, but I got asked to be in one. and So like, I went you know, in September and had my first tell-all. And um, the, guy, the first guy goes, all right, well, I'm gonna go first. And he sits down and he goes, okay, so like, I wanna talk to you guys about what's going on with me professionally, relationally, sexually, and spiritually. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is gonna be a nightmare. And we started at seven and there was three of us and it went all the way till 2 a.m. And what happens is you talk and basically you lay everything out of what happened this month. And then once you're done, people ask you questions about it. They're like, okay, so like, what, why did you go there at that time? And like, what, so like, what were you thinking? Like, what was, the, what was the motivation behind that? And you're like, under the gun, you know? Not like a super pleasant experience, but it's funny because you leave. I remember walking home. I, I live 10 blocks south of the guy's house that we were at. I remember walking home being like, it's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. <clears throat> um, what's you know like so? There's there's six things. There's probably more than that, but those are just like ones that I can list off the top of my head. Um, what's the result of all of that, um, Dave? Can you throw up the Tim Keller quote? This quote stuck out to me a lot during that time. It said, "To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear." But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. I think the thing that I had been missing and the thing that I didn't realize was that a lot of the steps that you take to be vulnerable lead to so much more life. And that's what Jesus is trying to draw people into, and that was the draw to the Pharisees. You can follow religious systems that you think keep you okay, but if you want to come over here, there's way more life. You can be honest. You can be known, and you know that third sentence there—to um, be fully known and truly loved. Like the the idea of combining those two. I think for a lot of us, like you know, it depends on the family you're raised in, um, or like what your background is. But like for a lot of us, we have. Uh, we probably are raised in families where, I'm not going to like ask for like, a show of hands, but I feel like this is common. You're raised in a family where you feel loved, but maybe not known super well. Um, there's deep parts of you that you really don't give everyone access to, but you know that your family like, loves you unconditionally. That's the experience for a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of people as well who feel the opposite. They feel like they were born into a family where the family knows them and really doesn't love them. And there's a whole thing you have to navigate through with that. But obviously, the dream would be that someone would know you for who you truly are. Some would understand your dreams and aspirations. Somebody would understand what your greatest weaknesses were. People would get all of that and they'd be like, yeah, I love you anyway. That's the ultimate dream. I mean, this, this is a quote from the meaning of marriage. And like when you look at a marriage situation, that's what everybody's hoping for, to be in that type of situation, to be um, able to walk through life with somebody who really does know all the downsides, but chooses you anyway. For me, I basically see that as like, uh, that's a life that I want to walk in. I want to pursue knownness. Um, I want to put myself out there and see if people still love me through it. Um, Those were things that vulnerability was opening up for me, but um, I don't want to just tell you a story about me. So I was thinking, What are some things that we can do as a church community to foster a culture of vulnerability where people feel like, you know, you don't have to hit a season of life where, you know, your uh, significant other tells you we need to talk, or you don't have to get in, you don't have to hit like a rough patch, you could just actually walk in vulnerability right now, today. Um, Don't wait for life's greatest disasters to throw you um, for a loop. So, what can we do to create a culture of vulnerability? My first thing that I think would be that we could encourage um, a culture of confession. Uh, Throw that quote on the Dallas Willard quote up, Dave. So, like, this quote stuck out to me a lot through the time um, that I was going through. Confession is to let trusted others know our deepest weaknesses and failures, to nourish our faith in God's loving provision for our needs. So, nobody likes confession. Um, Confession is super, super hard, and like I said, to sit in the room with those guys and to basically walk through, hey, here's what's here's what's going on with me like this whole month. And here's like the ins and outs of everything. It's a super uncomfortable experience. That's why one of the key words up there is like trusted others. Uh, you have to find people in your life that you actually can trust this with. Um, but even when you find trusted people, you do realize you're taking a risk. Um, there is no non risk in this. That's why it's called vulnerability. Um, If you've ever read Brene Brown's book on vulnerability, she talks about how it's courageous to be vulnerable and like people confuse those words sometimes. But the reality is like if you're going to do confession with somebody and if you're going to actually let them in and let them know who you really are, you're going to have to be brave because once you give that to someone, they can take advantage of you with it. Like that is the reality of the situation. Here's the question that you have to ask yourself. Is it worth the risk? Um, I do think that it's worth the risk because I think that, um, if the Bible demonstrates anything, it's that Christianity is ridiculously interdependent and that this idea of like, I have a relationship with God to the exclusion of everyone else is not biblical at all. And, um, I would guess that if you feel stuck in life and you feel like you need breakthrough, if you're not letting other people into that, you will probably never experience breakthrough. The idea that it's a it's a very evangelical American idea that there's just an us and there's just a me and God relationship and it doesn't involve the community, and a lot of people are stuck because of that, because as you well know the narratives that we play out in our head are really really silly sometimes. Um, there's like uh, you know you take like a simple example. It's like maybe you maybe you like maybe you've been uh, talking like in a degrading way to your wife um, and you that just is exists and that's just between you and God and like maybe sometimes you know it you know you're like, oh, shouldn't be doing that but at the end of the day like you know it probably wasn't that bad and um, I don't really think like you know she's probably not even bugged by anything like that and um, you know she said that thing to me too and you play this narrative out in your head. does anybody else do this like you kind of like have your rationalizations and justifications for everything that you do? And here's the thing, you're a genius in your head because there's no other competing voices. Like, it's just you. And you really always have it figured out. Um, but the second that you have to sit down with somebody else, somebody else you're going to get in front of and you're going to say, yeah, well, I'm feeling a little bit guilty because I, you know, I said this thing to my wife. And they're like, what did you say? And you're like, uh... <laughs> so I said this. Oh, wow. Do you think that hurt her? And you're like, uh... And all of a sudden, it's like you actually have to come face to face with the reality of other human beings. And Now the narrative in your head stops. That's like the beautiful thing about confession is you don't do it alone anymore. And I will say this for someone who's been practicing confession, you know, consistently as I can. Trust me, it's still scary no matter how far you go into it. But for someone who's been practicing this, one of the things that you'll find that's absolutely amazing is... For some reason, when you speak that out into the world, it's so, so much easier to deal with temptation or um, to put off uh, the idea of like, you know, you, do, you tend to not repeat the same mistakes. And it's very biblical. Um, in James 5.16, it says, confess your sins um, one to another. Why? So that you may find healing, right? There's an idea that like, you know, the logic of that means that for those of you who are looking for healing, if you're not confessing your sins one to another, you may never find it. And that's the reality of what confession can do. Um, The second thing I think that we need to do as a community is we need to discourage a celebrity culture um, in church. And obviously it exists in the world, and that's just part of life, you know? And there's a naturalness to the way that we put people on pedestals. But I think there's something like super um, gross and tough about the idea of celebrity in church. Um, Dave, can you throw the George McDonald quote up? I love this quote. I like live by it. Um, George MacDonald's a writer that C.S. Lewis really, really like appreciate it, and he has these little excerpts that he put together. One is just called "A Silly Notion," and I love that because it's like so simple. No silly notion of playing the hero. What have men like us to do with heroism, who are not yet barely honest? And isn't it so true? It's like. We have this, like, there's a celebrity mindset that exists in our culture, and we really do bring that into the church. And it's so weird because people are always so disappointed by celebrities in the end. If you want, like, a more relevant quote, I won't, um, you know, that's like an 18th century writer. I'll give you Batman, right? He says, uh, You either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain, right? And the reality is, like, we live under the shadow of that every day. If you live life in Quadrant Two, you better die a hero quick because you will drift into villainy. You know? You're going to see the world change around you and, people are, and at some point, whatever you're hiding is going to be exposed. So the idea that people are celebrities, we need to squash that. And there are certain things that we need to do. Two things. One thing is we need to look at systems and then be able to adjust those systems. Um, there are people that are usually in church um, that are put into positions of power and those positions of power need to be constantly looking for how can we take a position of power where someone has a high level of authority and introduce vulnerability into it? One simple thing is if you are in these positions of power, you actually introduce vulnerability into it by delegating your power to other people. When you empower other people, you give up some of your authority and you become more vulnerable. Because if you are ultimately in charge, and every manager knows this, when you delegate, you are at the mercy of those that you delegate to, and they better do good work or you might lose your job. That kind of vulnerability creates flourishing in quadrant one life. But the other thing is, I think that we also need to be the kind of people that don't idolize people. Um, Christians are called out of the world and out of this system of celebrity. I mean, you can obviously see it like the way that, um, when you look at just election results alone, I hate the way that Christians participate in the drama of election results. I love that everybody votes. But this idea that everyone walks around mopey and sad when something doesn't go their way, is crushing because it's like that does that's not where our hope lies and that's not where our future lies and there's no man or woman coming to fix any problem and ultimately God is the only one who can do that and that's not just for the outer world that's for your inner world as well and so um, we as people need to um, need to be mindful is there people in our lives that we are idolizing is there people that we've propped up on a pedestal um, I respect a lot of people in this community. Um, you know Pastor Shem can just spout verses off the top of his head and he's got that British Kenyan accent that makes it like even like ten times cooler but um, but the reality is like I, I m- my calling in life and what God has for me to, to be is just not going to be what Shems is it's totally different um, and I, I've lived with my dad you guys probably think he's great, but you know if <laughs> once you <laughs> once you re- like he he lived long enough to become the villain so <laughs> So like, that's the thing, is like we put people on pedestals and we think that we have it all together. The reality is, if somebody's speaking on this stage, they're just like you. No one has it together. Everyone's trying to figure it out. And everybody's figuring out new things. And we can come together collaboratively. And we can actually say, how are you doing? How am I doing? You know, I'd be excited if somebody came up and asked that to me. Um, in closing, I just want to say this. Eugene Peterson does a great job of um, explaining Christianity by saying Christianity is basically two things. Uh, you're a, dis- you're a disciple and you're a pilgrim. And um, a, disciple is, uh, a disciple is somebody who learns from the master. But there's a learning process, right? And a pilgrim is somebody who is on a journey. And that's a process as well. And, um, and so when I think of this, when I think of my life, my Christian walk, um, as a disciple and as a pilgrim, um, I, I basically look at it like this. Sometimes we live in a world that portrays things like, here's your starting point, And I don't know what this is, born, salvation, whatever you think starts there. And then here's the end, which is relational life with God, heaven, stuff like that. And the Christian life is just like a trajectory over here. <laughs> and that's the way that like, I think like, we present a lot of times in life that the world works or the church works or faith works or whatever is like, Hey, listen, like stay obedient, stay centered, follow this trajectory and eventually like God will meet your needs and find you in those areas and you'll push on towards the goal and you'll run like a good race. Well, my personal experience has been different than that. I'm going to check my notes to see if I get this drawing right. Mine's been different because I think, you know, when I really am honest about my weaknesses and failures, my journey kind of started here and then it took a turn and then it went a little further and then it went back here. And go a little further, and then it just started going like this. (laughs) And I think that if I talk to all of you guys, this would probably be true for a lot of us, is there's a lot of life that um, is a learning process. And as a disciple, you're not prepared in the beginning to know how to get to the end. And as a pilgrim, you don't know where you're going. And as this process goes, you're figuring things out. And as long as you can stay vulnerable and stay brave enough to share that experience with others and then let God into those situations, he will literally take you here no matter what this journey looks like. Um, That's what I'm learning. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to, uh, oh thanks. I hope that that blesses you. I hope that it challenges you. Like, you know, I I really don't believe in recipes, and so I don't put together, like, anything where I'm like, so here, you know, follow those six things that I recommend or whatever. I feel like, actually, the best thing to do in life is always to share our stories with each other. And so basically, you you just heard my story, and maybe you'll pick up some pieces of something that might work for you. Um, But the whole idea is share your story and be vulnerable, because when you do, that's what catalyzes this whole thing and gets it moving forward. And so that's my prayer for you.